0: Welcome to MPA Connections with me, Lashanti the Siren. This is a podcast to discuss the MPA Connect network. This network exists to connect MPA managers across the Caribbean. In this podcast, we will be interviewing managers from across the network to show how this initiative is meeting the real needs of managers by tapping into the wealth of real world experiences. Today on this episode, we are speaking with MPA Connect coordinator, Emma Doyle. So, now we're going to do a rapid fire session. You're going to tell us what are some of the first things that come to mind about lessons learned or best examples when you see what that you see in the MPA Connect network based on the topics that I'm going to list. Are okay. you ready?
1: Okay, I think I'm ready.
0: <laughs> awesome. So the first one will be financing and MPAs.
1: Okay, what comes to mind quickly? There are no simple solutions to, there's no silver bullet for MPA financing. And the individual MPA manager and team has to find like the right mix of strategies to generate funding for their sites and has to tackle the obstacles to getting the funding flowing. Because often there's obstacles um, that are fundamental things that we need to solve like legislation, which is tricky. But um, you have, as a manager, you have to do the math. There's no simple way to get around this. You really have to do the maths and work out your site budget and know exactly what your forecasts are and be able to identify what the gap is that you're trying to fill in order to work out which strategies are going to best meet your needs financially. Um, We still have a long way to go on MPA financing, unfortunately, but MPA Connect has tools, guides. We're I'm working with, continuing to work with Wolf's company to put together some sort of simple materials. Job Villafranco's helped so much with MPA budgeting. We've got great examples around the network. Um, so everybody needs to, I guess, get creative, do the math, and yeah, call, call on us. Take it, make the most of the resources available, and take time. Uh, I think Celia Mahung will tell us that, yeah, it really is worth taking the time to focus on getting your financing strategies right, invest time in sorting out your organizational and your MPA budgets, that it's time well invested, but it's hard to do. And, you know, when we, none of us are financing people, so it's not easy. So I get it. And, you know, it just, it takes the effort though. Okay.
0: Awesome. That was good. All right. The next one is going to be law enforcement, lessons learned or best example.
1: (sighs) Okay. Um we've done a lot on law enforcement since 2012 when we did what I think was the region's first regional get-together on MPA enforcement. And it was great to do. Um, since that, but what we learned then is yeah, you have you can only do uh, law enforcement training relevant to each country or territory and the specific, you know, specific laws and legal structures and the depending on the local local enforcement partners in those places. So we've gone back and we've done a lot of local law enforcement training as well, which has been great. The biggest thing I've learned from that is how much confusion exists among police, Coast Guard, uh, Marine agencies. There's so much confusion about who has responsibility for, for Marine and for environmental enforcement. So the best benefit of doing joint local law enforcement training is actually getting those partners under the same roof. To nut it all out, and in the Bahamas, this worked really well. And in fact, directly after the joint law enforcement training, there was a huge bust with Ports Authority involved, National Trust with DMR got involved. Um, you know, backup from the military and the police. And so it was, it the biggest thing with enforcement is that yeah. you can't do it alone, um, and you've got to partner with your local yeah. law enforcement agencies. Um, also if all you do is focus on law enforcement, you're probably setting yourself up for failure because with MPAs you've got to have a, you've got to build compliance and you've got to have all those complementary activities that help build stewardship, the livelihoods initiatives, the youth education, community liaison in order to help support intelligence gathering and to support stewardship. Um, it's an area that's susceptible to budget cuts and to staffing cuts. You know, it's it's, but we can be more strategic yeah. about it, and um, you know, we can build strategic enforcement yeah. plans. But it depend. You need the budget, but it also then links with like biophysical monitoring and knowing where to enforce at what time of the year, so that you're not just running around in circles, burning fuel. Um, so being strategic and yeah, and using some of the some of the technology solutions that are you know that are evolving is important. I think that's it. Mr. Gamboa and Mr. Young will be able awesome. to, I'm sure, enhance this when they speak about enforcement as our mentors in Belize.
0: Awesome. Okay. So the next topic would be livelihoods and stakeholders, lessons learned and/or best examples.
1: Yeah, we've so Mr. Ayuso um, at Belize Audubon Society works hand in hand with Mr Shane Young, who leads the marine or marine management, marine operations, so that when they're doing um, their enforcement and compliance program, that community liaison is a key aspect of the work. Um, you know, the bar is constantly being raised for communications, and we saw this in the change between 2011 and 2017, that if anything, managers were more critical of their own performance Um, And perhaps showed a drop in capacity in relation to communications rather than an increase over the years. Because I think the expectations of social media and online marketing and talking with stakeholders, you know, interacting with the press, those expectations only get greater and greater. Um, So, but, but everything comes back to communications. Doesn't matter if I'm talking about financing, or if we're working on enforcement, or if we're working on monitoring. It all comes back to how do you communicate about it. So communications is just central to everything, right. and it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to cost a lot. You know, look at uh, if if everybody gives a follow to Roatan Marine Parks Instagram, you'll see that they're doing amazing things with their social media, and that doesn't have to cost a lot. And They had some technical assistance through MPA Connect to help with that. And again, it's not a a really expensive area to work on when we compare it with some of the other things that we do. So, you know, communications uh, is critical. And I I think maybe we could make greater use of SOCMON and our socioeconomic monitoring to help guide us in our communications activities. I feel like maybe the SOCMON angle, we use it to think about livelihoods and, Say we've used it to help guide and to target micro grants in support of livelihoods development and livelihoods diversification, supplemental livelihoods to fisheries. We've done good work, I think, on that in Belize and Honduras, and we've targeted it according to the, so- the SOCMON data. Mexico also targeted some work according to SOCMON. But when it comes to communications, perhaps we could be doing more to measure perceptions. And to right. try and you know keep tweaking and tailoring our communications programs. Does hmm. that answer that?
0: Yeah, it definitely does. Which actually brings me to the next one: monitoring. And that could either be the biophysical or the
1: socioeconomic monitoring. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, biophysical probably comes first to mind, thinking about coral monitoring yeah. and thinking about MPA monitoring. And look, by this we're we're talking about having repeat structured observations. Doing a baseline study once or having some foreign researchers come in and do a study in your MPA is not really monitoring. No, we need, we mean that sort of repeat monitoring. And okay, it doesn't have to be every year. In some places we're doing, the Grenadines is doing monitoring. Agra, if they can, every three to five years to get a read Mm -hmm. on what's happening with coral uh, coverage, to get a read on what's happening with fish communities. And now often i find mpa managers will say well what should we be monitoring well no hold on i'm not going to tell you what you should be monitoring you tell me according right. <laughs> to your management objectives and what you're trying to achieve and what you're according to the questions in your head about should i do something differently when i manage well then we work out what you should be monitoring what you should be tracking right so i would encourage kind of to spin things around and don't think about this what should i monitor what do I need to monitor because then Mm -hmm. if you have a question that about should I change the way we are managing something in this area or this species or do we have an issue with people or visitors you know think about what the management question is and then design the monitoring around that and then and then that repeat monitoring track over time what's happening with it and I mean I could you know we can MPA Connect can link managers with other people who are doing monitoring and who know the reality because, you know, that can be an expensive area of your work. Probably enforcement is Mm -hmm. the most expensive area of the work, but monitoring can also be expensive and time consuming. Um, And to design according to what's practical, you know, what are other managers doing in the setting where we're resource poor, you know, how can you do cost effective monitoring? And it it is a challenge for some of our locations that are remote um, and where weather is a factor, it's yeah, it's hard and where there's competing priorities. I'm hearing that MPAs in the Caribbean are increasingly getting Mm -hmm. approached at the moment by foreign researchers who want to work with them. And you know, I'd encourage managers to be very selective about about knowing what they need to get done. And therefore, be selective about, you know, yeah. where do you try and build partnerships and, this, and you know, be very deliberate in the scope of the work that you try and achieve. So, I mean, it's a big topic. Yeah. And, yeah, even when we tried to do a one-week <laughs> learning exchange on biophysical monitoring, um, it's, yeah, it's, you know it's more we you know we need more than that but you know we're doing a lot of work on stony coral tissue loss disease at the moment and monitoring and identifying tracking where that disease awesome. is measuring the success of interventions so there's great experts and willing experts and yeah. we you know we partner with gosh i like i have i've have Judy Lang and Patricia Kramer basically on Speed Dial who are so helpful with questions that we have about fish and coral and others for mangroves and others for, you know, for all the different topics that we work with. Um, Water quality monitoring is a big topic that we're going to be tackling coming up in the next year. Um, And that's, there's some great experience to share from Honduras with places like St. Vincent and the Grenadines, who hopefully when their volcano settles down and when, you know, they, they, you know, when when they're able to, again, focus on on things like MPA management. You know, we hope that we can share experience because it's, and it's not just about the monitoring, it's about what you do with it, the decisions you take and how you communicate it. Okay, but that's that's going long. Sorry, Lashanti, I can talk a lot if I have, if I get the chance. No, but that, but like you said, that's, yeah,
0: that's an extensive topic. So I didn't expect that one to be the fastest.
1: And the the other thing. Are we have a few more? Oh. The other thing that's interesting with that topic, you know, with monitoring, there's some great examples in the region where community researchers are getting involved in monitoring. And it's, so we've picked up a model from Tide Belize where they developed a community researcher program to, number one, help when they needed extra people underwater. So they trained youth Um, trained volunteers, well, not really volunteers, but youth um, have received dive training and have learned to identify coral and fish and have learned to do water quality monitoring, whatever, seagrass, whatever, mangroves too, so that you can have community researchers who will provide extra help when you need at certain times, when you need extra people to help with doing monitoring, Mm -hmm. but they also become spokespeople who can say to their communities, I took part in this, I gathered that data, we can trust the information and this is what we're seeing, and they can also learn Mm -hmm. and speak capably about what's going on under the water. So that model's Mm -hmm. been picked up and is being replicated in the grenadines, for example, and so there's great, so that's, you know, that's where we link monitoring with potentially communications, with stakeholder engagement, with youth education, and yeah. even with helping, you know, diversify livelihoods because, you know, the, those community researchers earn a stipend, you know, they earn something for their time nice. spent helping. Yeah. yeah. All Sorry. these
0: connections, I love it. You know what the topics.
1: <laughs> it is. It's, it's yeah. all these different aspects of management are so interconnected, which is, yeah. which is probably what makes it, you know, makes it challenging to get right. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm i a great believer that we can do a fantastic job with MPA management. You know, I'm a believer in the fact that we can manage MPAs effectively and that they can contribute to sustainable development and that they can contribute to conservation of resources. And it, it requires, you know, building and taking all these great case studies, these great examples mm-hmm. that often relate to one or other area and linking them and bringing them together in a way that's meaningful for yeah. unique MPA contexts. No. definitely okay
0: yeah definitely for sure um but we do have a few more left in our rapid fire session <laughs> the next one being mpas as a tool in fisheries management
1: Oof. so you know <laughs> and that's you know in in many cases um mpas have been specifically designed as a tool for fisheries management and mm-hmm. they are one of many tools for fisheries management, whether it's other tools like temporal, you know, seasonal closures or gear restrictions or size limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's many different fisheries management tools, and really, MPAs are just one of those. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, you know, and there's different ways to do MPAs depending on your objectives for fisheries management. Um, so, look, I guess. What we see in the Caribbean is that we do have many small MPAs that have been established for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they've been um, established without really a concern for fisheries management, but more for conflict resolution or to preserve, you know, for a focus on tourism in an area, um, as right. a national, you know, protecting a national tourism asset. Um, so when we talk about fisheries management and MPAs, you really we found that managers really need to think about well what is the role that they seek to play in fisheries management and what's the role that's feasible for them to play you know what, is, what right. should their expectations be about what they can achieve depending on the size of the protected area depending on how long it's established for and depending on the mix of other fisheries management tools so it's yeah it's it's a really it's a big area um we did a we did a A peer-to-peer learning exchange in Sabre in 2018 on this topic and it was great to delve into that and now some of the speakers who I hope will be featured on this podcast will speak about it from you know those who have years of experience and who've worked also on implementing complementary tools like um, the Belizeans who've implemented um, managed access as a fisher licensing program, you know, mm-hmm. what they've learned um, and what Mrs. Miss Celia Mahung knows from years of working with fishers are uh, very much on the ground. Um, and then we might, I'm hoping we might hear from some of the younger members of the network who are really trying to connect, working hard to connect with local fishers like um, Ayumi on Sabre. Uh, so, you know, there's, theres it's a big topic and For everybody, just to know that, do you have a question on any aspect of fisheries? Let me know, and we have great experts in all topics of herbivores and parrotfish, um, experts in snapper and grouper, and experts in sharks and you know uh, habitat and (laughs) all fin fish and sport fish, and we can you know definitely connect with the latest and greatest science and you know it's a, I feel privileged to be able to connect with those really good scientific experts
0: yeah it's it's an extensive network definitely Awesome. Yeah. so the next one oh okay ready
1: <laughs> management planning oh you know, yeah. I think everybody gets so overwhelmed by the thought of having to do a management plan and yeah. having to update a management plan, and it's this—it's this Bible on the shelf that's a, a bound book that we all have to, ref, you know, yep. it's a goal. But in practice, it's interesting. You know, when I points Saab Environmental Protection Area in Saint Lucia, in about. 2014, 2015 wanted to update their management plan. They had an old plan, and I think I think it was Lloyd Gardner, who's very well respected, had worked on that. And now a number of years later, the the National Trust had resources to be able to operationalize the park and to protected area, to develop and to you know and to think also about additional aspects of the plan, like communications and financing and everything. So. Poor old Mr. Tulsi, who's the uh, the executive director at the trust. Yeah, you know, I think when we first started to talk about this, he was just like, "Oh, you know, what a process. How are we going to do this?" But we designed a really clear way to talk with the co-managers of the part of the protected area to update about the status of resources with the users through some consultation yeah. meetings, and we really honed in. Just we had some a couple of experts um, in management, you know people with great experience in working with and writing management plans. A Couple of people gave us input on sections of the plan that now we probably needed to update. And so we didn't try to rewrite the whole thing. We just tried to focus on the things that needed updating in order for the Trust to be able to manage the site with its partners and held a number of meetings, we had great attendance, the Trust did a great job in helping me to organize and we facilitated those together. We updated the sections that needed it, and done. And at a certain point in that process, Mr. Tulsi said to me, oh, "I can see there's light at the end of the tunnel." And I was so pleased. <laughs> now, one of the things also that we did with the with the management plan there and in helping um, others in the Grenadine in St. Vincent and Grenada was also to think about the management plan not as a big, bound, permanent document, but to put it in a binder. And you know one of those ring binders that you can um. open up. Yep. If a section's no good, throw it away. Mm-hmm. You get a new, you get new information. Put it in place. You have some pullouts so that when you go to a, a board meeting or a stakeholder meeting, you can go right. Let's pull out what we're trying to do in an easy to read format or summaries yes. of monitoring findings to try and break it down and make it manageable and make it a living document. Yeah, because managers, you know, the management plan is important to drive you to know what should be in your MPA budget. Mm-hmm. Fundamental. Um, It can help drive, you know, your partnerships with enforcement partners or research partners. You know, it's a fundamental and it's important document to know, you know, to have good, clear guidance. Um, But it's got to be workable for the manager. So in that sense, and in helping bring the connections, it needs to be something that you can refer to, that you can update, that you can change. And so, you know, keep... And we've seen that in 2011, Um, And then in 2017, when we asked managers in this capacity assessment process, how are you doing on management planning? We really, we didn't see any progress. I mean, we've worked on this with a couple of sites that progressed, but then overall the plans get outdated or Mm -hmm. they're still not formally approved if they need to go through parliamentary approval or anything really serious. They're still Mm -hmm. not approved. So we weren't seeing change in that area. And maybe that reflects some of the challenges we have in other areas of management. So it is, Mm -hmm. it's important to get right.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I like that you said um, it's typically seen as this Bible on the shelf that you can't change, but now you guys are doing it in these binders. You can pull out sections that are no longer relevant and update them. So that's, that's a better way I think of doing management planning as opposed to the archaic, you know, this is in stone for as long as it can be. Yeah. Awesome. So our next rapid fire section is communications. Oh, this one's my I
1: favorite. Think, uh, I, think I've, I think I've already talked about this like three mm-hmm. times. <laughs> yeah, no, just fundamental. Um, give you me a, a best, best example. Yeah, a best example. I think I have to say that uh, in terms of our mentor for education work, um, okay. It's always a pleasure to work with teachers and it's always a pleasure to work with youth, the next generation, and it's yes. an important, it's something that MPAs can do where, you know, we don't always have, you know, we don't have, say, a lot of conflict involved. We're giving something back to communities by helping to involve kids in The chance to get to know what's in their world, to get to know their local protected area, to get to know what's under the water, maybe to learn to swim, snorkel, dive, to learn to learn about engines and driving boats. Practical MPA education is great to do. Um, Bonaire Junior Rangers, uh, who are initiative of STINAPA, the foundation that manages Bonaires Parks. Um, yeah. they've they've had such a great program over the years. Desiree Croes has always been willing to share with us and and to learn too from others in the network, um, and to and to get the kids to share around the network as well. Um, she's she's contributed a lot. We've worked a lot over the years together um, through the Dutch Caribbean Nature Alliance, and getting Desiree and the Junior Rangers to help our network has been great. So we we got them to the peer to peer where we talked about strategic communications and also about education and shared all about, you know, how to, you know, what we've learned from communicating with fishes But we learned a bit, but then there were a couple of sites that especially wanted to develop junior ranger type programs. Yeah. And Amy Avenant and the Turks and Caicos, um, Basha Clark in Belize Audubon Society, working with Blue Hole, um, and uh, Vicky in, at Ishkalak in Mexico, um, Sabre as well, Leslie and Sabre. We, they all got together for kind of a write shop in Bonaire where they yeah. got to go out and see what Desiree does with the junior rangers and how the program works, where volunteers fit in, what the kids do, how it's designed, how they work with partners. And when they were doing that process, we actually we actually got, say, Amy and Varsha wanted to put down on paper so they could explain to corporate donors, to social NGOs, what they were yeah. doing and put together an outline of the protected area um, education plan. Was made it so much easier for them to go away and really design these programs. And so, the Blue Hole and Half Moon Key Natural Monument. There's now a Reef Protectors Reef Protectors program, which is a youth education program, and kids are doing really, really well. And there's so much interest in that program. And now, when the enforcement team are doing their visits to boats that are fishing in the MPAs and when they're checking licences, sometimes they have the the community liaison officer with them and they're able to actually say, ah, your son was with us the other day. He's doing really well and he's now he's about to get his divers licence. He's doing such a great job with learning and, you know, he's now been speaking uh, in debates or talking in the communities at at meetings about what the reef protectors are doing and sort of close that circle which yeah. has been really valuable so that it's not just hard enforcement that's going on out in the park, although there is a role for that, of course, um, but it's also linking with the community benefits and out, you know, the benefits of outreach and education that come back in yeah. that are helping reinforce the enforcement program. The compliance program is stronger and it really is building a sense of stewardship. So others are adopting this. Orisha, um, Orisha Joseph and the MPAs and the Grenadines have done great work on it. And so, yep, yeah, that education angle is always a pleasure to work on. Definitely. Which a, makes me think, good. which makes me remember too, we also have World Heritage Sites in our network and they're special places that mm. also have unique perspective on things. And yeah, yeah. and um, between the Belize, the Belize Barrier Reef and St. Lucia's um, um, Pitons Management Area, those are World Heritage Areas the special nice. special programs too sorry okay. i digress
0: no it's not a problem our next topic is responding to disturbances you know like the sargassum and the coral disease hurricanes oh, etc
1: yeah yeah and, you know that's that's the topic that comes at the bottom when we look at the prior the the when we look at what managers are telling us about where do they most prioritized their mm-hmm. requests for capacity building. It's on the bottom. Nobody nominated yeah. it as a priority area when we pushed them to pick the top three. Um, yeah. And it's an area where there's quite uneven capacity. Uh, we, we present the capacity findings in in maps that show you know where is there high or low capacity around the region, which helps us see you know where to target assistance. And it's pretty uneven. Um, you know, it's something Responding to disturbances is something that requires action planning, really requires yeah. good multi-agency, multi-partner planning, which is hard to do. And it really only becomes a priority when the disaster happens,
0: happens when there's yeah. a hurricane,
1: when the volcano blows up, when there's suddenly bleaching, when there's suddenly an oil spill or a grounding, you know, yeah. when that's when it's a problem. So, and you know, I kind of have to apologise to everybody this year and last, the last two years you know, we're trying to work on pr- important stuff for the MPAs and get projects done, but then we've had the coral disease appear. And so yeah. suddenly all these plans to do great stuff on MPA management, I mean, my time and manager's time mm-hmm. and a lot of effort in NOAA is going into that crisis of coral yeah. disease. So... It's straight up
0: the priority list. <laughs> exactly. The and so to the re- that,
1: exactly. And so that's when you... Exactly. And so when those things happen, you realise you need local action plans to help us prioritise and allocate resources and bring people together and put, you can't, you know, managers yeah. can't deal with these things on their own. If it's cleaning up sargassum or it's treating mm-hmm. corals or monitoring corals, well, then you need to know who's going to go where and when and where do we put our effort. So it's, yeah, that's all I can say. Is we, we do have some really great resources, though, on action planning for coral yeah. disease. So please, you know use those to, you know, as a starting point to, to try and make life easier for managers to tailor things to what they need um, as an action plan at site level. Or we can share, we also share other examples from Florida, from Mexico, wherever, to, to help managers see what they sh- what they could do in terms of local action planning. Um, so come to us for help mm-hmm. and resources on, on those things. Um, GCFI and MPA Connect both.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oof. so last but not least oh, no yeah, I know you made it through <laughs> <laughs> climate change which of course has been a reoccurring theme for decades now
1: yeah and it's it's really yeah I mean it's so it's it's such an external driver of many of the yeah. you know of issues that we face day to day and that our managers on the ground are having to deal with and yet, it's, you know, it's one of those things that's really hard to make, to do anything to mitigate. Um, we've done quite a bit of work on climate change adaptation for MPA managers. And there's there's a program called LEAP, Local Early Action Planning for Adaptation to Climate Change, which Megan Gombos, who originally helped with the original capacity assessment, she's she um, has helped us to tailor this kind of approach to consultation with stakeholders, from the Pacific region to the Caribbean, and we tested it out in um, Mexico. No, sorry, that one we we tested it out in the north and in the south of Belize with different fishing communities, and then we've also applied it in Cariacou in Grenada, and it's been a really good way to help managers think about adaptation and kind of have a a structure, to have an approach and a way to go to communities to start to talk about Um, to talk about climate change adaptation. Now, there's, I guess, two things. Let me think about bleaching, um, coral bleaching, and let me think about compliance in the context of, and and planning and, and compliance, because, you know, there's really good science that surrounds some of the issues that we see. Originally, we worked with the with the five Cs, the, the CARICOM uh, Climate Change Centre in Belmopan, to mm. try and pin down what are the climate change projections for the Caribbean? and What does that translate to as the effects or the impacts that managers might be dealing with? So we, we tried to be very specific and we've got a cheat sheet that has, you know, the types of, if we see a sea level rise of this, what can we expect to see in terms of impacts on fishes and on particular fisheries even? You know, what's the impact on the lobster fishery in the south of Mexico? We can can talk about really concrete impacts. So that was very important to pin it down. Like ocean acidification is a big one and that's very hard for an MPA manager to be able to talk about constructively. And, you know, some experts have even advised me, you know, just don't, For managers, it's a hard one to even try and tackle. But if we can focus on things like impacts on fisheries and impacts on corals, then, you know, We have great science from the NOAA Coral Reef Watch program that forecasts what's likely to happen with bleaching. And if MPA managers can monitor the coral reef watch and talk when they, you know, we've actually got some, we've got some great stuff, great advice on trigger points. When should you start to talk to managers? You know, when the warning gets to coral bleaching is likely, well, let's start to talk to stakeholders about this and tell them about the predictions and tell them to look out for bleaching and let us know if they're seeing it. Then it happens. Gee, that's going to be good for our credibility as managers to be able to forecast what's going under mm-hmm. the water, going on under the water, and for our our stakeholders to see that we're credible and have real good information. Well, then, being able to mm-hmm. um, respond as things happen—that's been the focus of the local early action planning work. Um, and so, the, you know, there's there's really nice guides and good inf- good examples on that. So. We can always link anyone who's interested on that topic. Um, but, yeah, building coral reef resilience, I think, is what we're all about and helping communities to adapt as part of our, you know, part of what we do. It's, it's yeah, it's probably going to be an increasing thing. We're seeing perhaps with sargassum and, um, you know, if, if ocean currents change and fisheries change, it will perhaps be something yeah. that we go to more and more. But um, as part of responding to disturbances, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's all up there as to thinking about action planning and sort of making it a priority for those sites where it's relevant. And it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a num- when people can work on it, but right. certainly financing and enforcement and, you know, getting mm-hmm. monitoring data and dealing with fisheries management for our MPAs, those are featuring, featuring higher. But we have got we have got good resources yeah. and good partners when it comes to climate change and thinking resilience. Oof. That's good to are know. Are we doing all like twenty?
0: Definitely, climate change is one of those. Like, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that is the last yeah.
0: one. You um, know, and you know, so and you, know Shanti,
1: <laughs> you know, Lishanti. The it, it also shows how important are partnerships you know, and marine protected areas often can be kind of ambassadors for work on difficult issues like marine debris or like climate change, you know, so where the managers can be in touch with their focal points for international initiatives, that's really, that's important. Um, You know, part of a part of the manager's time, you know, is, is inevitably involved in some of these bigger picture issues, but also, working effectively with managers with other agencies and with other focal points who take a role nationally and regionally and those is important. Yeah definitely. So
0: to sum up are you feeling very optimistic about the prospects for MPAs in the Caribbean?
1: I think I'm probably because I've worked in this area for 10 years and in conservation and sustainable development for before that i think i'm probably naturally an optimist and i think you have to be an optimist um i i am a firm believer that there are really good experiences and examples and there are really good people making progress on the ground so it's a hard job and it's always under resourced but i'm i'm a firm believer that there's good work going on and i'm fortunate I'm focused on sharing things that work and things that don't work. And um, I think that by coming together and by sharing those experiences, we can be optimistic um, about the future for MPAs and we can be optimistic and we can be positive about the role that MPAs have to play nationally. And I think COVID, if anything, has shown that rangers are in the field, they can be relied upon to be out there to be trying to protect resources, that MPA managers even if they're facing austerity measures they're doing everything they can to ensure that resources are managed well for future generations and that we don't lose hard fought gains that we've made in the past in establishing these areas and in managing them well. So I think there's a wealth of reasons to be positive about the prospect for MPAs in the Caribbean. Um, And I I think I can see that by, even though MPA Connect through through GCFI and NOAA and other partners, even though we may have only had a small, you know, a relatively small amount of support and funding to, to contribute, by virtue of working on an enduring basis by working over a number of years and being consistent and being targeted in the support, I think we we can bring change, and you know we can help managers to achieve what they what they want to need to achieve. So, if we can, we're working hard behind the scenes to try and bring more support for capacity building and for networking in the Caribbean. And if we can achieve that, I think yeah, I think the prospects are the perspectives are only should only be positive.
0: sure i'm definitely optimistic i think mps in the caribbean are not only beautiful but definitely essential so
1: that's a good tagline (laughs) they are essential (laughs) i do like that
0: thank you so much for being on this episode emma it was so great to have you do this initial episode of course MPA Connect is this network, and MPA Connections is now this podcast, so you being the coordinator for the network was the perfect person to have on this first episode. And to all the viewers, thank you for tuning in to this episode of MPA Connections. Again, a huge thank you to our guest, Emma Doyle. Make sure you follow the work of MPA Connect on their Facebook page and on their Instagram page. This is where you can find out about more episodes about this podcast, and again, Follow all the work that's been happening in the past and the work that's to come for the future. So see you next time on MPA Connections. Thanks, Lashandi.